This episode of the Global Franchise Podcast is brought to you by School of Rock, the world's leader in performance-based music education. For more information, visit franchising.schoolofrock.com. Welcome to the Global Franchise Podcast, keeping you up to date with all the latest news in the exciting and dynamic world of international franchising. I'm Kieran McLoon, editor for Global Franchise Magazine. A lot of folks uh, that I've talked to in Europe are, they're jealous of the US and Canada. Wow, you guys can really do so much more. Yeah, we do more with, I guess, less. The government controls it so much, it's very annoying, and yet we're still killing it in franchising. So I'm just trying to take away some excuses that some of my friends across the pond have had that, well, you you guys have such a great thing. Well, we have a great thing in some ways, but we're so much more controlled than others. Our guest today is perhaps one of the most recognisable faces in the North American franchise industry. Red Boswell has been the president of IFPG since 2018, but he's been deeply immersed in franchising for the better part of three decades. Having worked as a franchisor, CEO, speaker and consultant, Red's experience is matched only by his passion for the business model. On this episode of the podcast, we wanted to dive deep into that passion and hear from Red about why franchising has kept him engaged for so much of his career. We take a look back over the pandemic's year of disruption and see if we can pick out any silver linings to come from a complete upheaval of the industry. Back in, in grade school, I started selling pencils to my my uh, classmates and realized the supply and demand was something I couldn't keep up with. And so I started kind of licensing or selling pencils to folks and letting them sell pencils and getting an override. And that was just so fun and rewarding. And, you know, fast forward a few decades and here we are uh, in a very legal structure, a very protected and defined uh, industry, but it's still at its core, the same thing, helping people, achieve their dreams, their lifestyle goals, their financial goals, whatever that is in life that they're looking to accomplish and have have a stay in it, be con- in control of it. I just love it. I just love the fact that we can help people do what they want to do and achieve their dreams in business. So that's what franchising, that's why I say in it so much. And I, I wake up before my alarm most days, just excited about what the day might, uh, what awaits. That's really great to hear, Red, and you can really tell, you know, that you've you've got a lot of passion for it, not only in all the work that you've done, but just really the way you, you know, uh, talk about the business model in both to me now and also the many um, outlets that you've you've been a part of over the years, and um, as well as kind of you know your your presence in the industry today, you've had uh, numerous um, you know a variety of roles across franchising. Um, and you've also been a franchisor, of course. You founded Pet Butler back in 1998. And I was curious to hear a little about what you think um, the experience of being a franchisee has, you know, how has that changed in those, uh, what's that, 23 years by this point? Are there diff- a lot of differences between being a franchisee in 2021 compared to the late 90s when you founded the brand? Thanks. Well, interesting question. So franchisee, franchisor, franchise, those uh, three very similar words. The franchisor, of course, uh, the parent company, the franchisee is someone who bought the rights to an individual location or territory. And then the franchise is the concept or the model. So the difference between a franchisee today and 
a decade or three or four ago is, uh, you know, no surprise. Technology is a big part of it. Social media didn't exist a couple of decades ago. And so um, the transparency of the franchise or franchisee relationship continues to get more and more transparent. The uh, government uh, intrusion, <laughs> intrusion is a negative word, but the government influence uh, has grown in most countries uh, in, in franchising. The taxes are higher. Uh, marketing has changed considerably in that there's so much more online and the consumer has so much more control of what they watch and see and, and, and the filters in place in their life that can keep you and your message out of their eyes and ears. So uh, I know I jumped all over the place. I tend to be pretty ADHD, but there's a lot of changes in the world of marketing more than any other area, although I did mention quite a bit with government intrusion into our business. Um, by the way, the Europe, a lot of folks in Europe, and you guys are founded in Europe. I'm based in Texas in the U.S. And so many Europeans, I think, uh, when I speak with them, and I've traveled all over there uh, with some franchisors back in the day, that the Europeans look at the U.S. and Canada oftentimes and see this very entrepreneurial um, capitalistic society kind of where franchising really took hold and they don't realize that in the US and Canada we are way more restricted than you guys we have way more rules more way more regulations government has taken way more influence in franchising in the US and Canada than in the vast majority of Europe that really surprises a lot of folks and and so just know that a lot of folks that I talk to in Europe are they're jealous of the US and Canada. Wow, you guys can really do so much more. Yeah, we do more with, I guess, less. The government controls it so much, it's very annoying. And yet we're still killing it in franchising. So I'm just trying to take away some excuses that some of my friends across the pond have had that, well, you, you, you guys have such a great thing. Well, we have a great thing in some ways, but we're so much more controlled than others. Yeah, no, that, that was quite surprising to me, actually, at the minute, we're kind of putting together a UK um, report for Global Franchise Magazine. And it is surprising when you really sort of sit down and recognize that the UK as a market, for example, is largely unregulated compared to the US, um, which is very surprising, because you'd assume that we've kind of just maybe, we'd maybe ape what the US is doing, because you guys are arguably the founders of franchising. But it is really interesting to see how, uh, how much the model varies overseas. Yes. It's uh, what we would call the Wild West. <laughs> I was on a call with our, some UK friends on a podcast, and there was probably 200 folks on there. It was during the pandemic, and we were sharing the differences. And I tell you what, the chat box lit up. I mean, we could have gone for hours and hours on there when I started sharing what we in the US and Canada are allowed to say to a candidate versus what we're not allowed to say to a candidate. They absolutely, I don't think there was a soul on that call that could believe what I was saying. I mean, I could I could virtually see their jaws hanging on the floor of, are you kidding me? You're not allowed to share what you can make? How do you sell a franchise, Red? They were literally asking a dozen people, how in the world can you sell a franchise in the US when you can't even talk about how much you can make unless it's documented and audited in legal documents. That just surprised folks a lot. So I know we got off track there, but just wanted to encourage my friends, uh, especially your your audience uh, in Europe and outside of North America, 
it's not all perfect over here. We got a lot of problems and a lot of restrictions that you guys don't have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. And um, and what, sort of you mentioned there the I suppose elephant in the room. Hopefully, less so as we move forward. The the pandemic um, was, of course, you know, a massive disruptive thing to the the day to day of a lot of operators. Um, but I was curious as to whether you kind of have identified maybe as we're fingers crossed coming out the other end of it. Um, you know, whether there are any silver linings or perhaps benefits that have come out of the the massive disruption, and not in a sense of obviously closures, but maybe it's changed the way that franchisors have viewed how they can operate or what they should do moving forward do you think that there could be a case made for that there is uh you know every candidate that comes into the process now comes into the discovery process you know one of their top questions when they go through validation and they all go through validation is how did the franchisor take care of you how did they respond during covid it's anybody that doesn't ask that doesn't deserve to own a franchise, right? So that is <laughs> a foundational question. Mm. And you better have a, you better, you as a Zor, franchise or better have a great answer or better put your franchisees that are validating with the candidates better have a great answer or you are dead in the water. So that's going to be a huge change. It already is a huge change that nobody asked a year and a half ago, what happened? How did the franchisor respond during XYZ? Now everybody asks it. So that's a, a big change and a big influence. Another is franchising is a huge industry, trillion dollar industry globally. There are lots and lots of categories, sectors. Some of them, man, demolished, got destroyed, hurt big time. I mean, you know, a third of, uh, I hear different numbers, but a third of restaurants are gone. And so it strengthened those that made it. You know, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. In that case, there are some stronger brands today because of the pain they went through and the pivots they made. I said pivot, so everybody has to drink. Anyway, um, that's, <laughs> that's our Zoom game. But on the flip side, there's some industries that just flat out did incredible. Now, I don't know about, it, for, for, for instance, in the UK, but uh, home services. I mean, when everybody's staying home, <laughs> let's just say it. Plumbers killed. If you're a plumber, <laughs> I mean... The, the home toilet's getting used five times more than it was before the pandemic. And now suddenly plumbers are seeing their business double and triple and painting services. And man, if I had only owned a pool service uh, back in, you know, when the COVID hit, pool services are in the, in, in my market, because we've been looking at getting a pool, there is a full 15 month wait. Wow. 15 that's crazy. Months. Used to, there was like, you know, they're begging you to call and now they don't yeah. even want to answer their phone. So some sectors, especially the home services have, are, have exploded and they are not seeing a slowdown while others were really tried and proven. And some of them were kind of the chaff has been uh, removed and now they have a, a leg up on with less competition. And, um, and continuing on that note of kind of looking forward development, a lot of hopefully very good things now. Um, one of the things that you've spoken about in the past um, was the the idea of the franchising fee and that a lot of franchisors set this way too low and it doesn't let them account for all the various things that that fee needs to pay for. Um, and you know, off the back of COVID-19, it seems that we're going to see a real boom in uh, entrepreneurs looking to get involved in the industry. 
but people's financial situations may still be a little rocky off the back of this. Um, and I was wondering whether you had any thoughts as to, you know, whether franchisors need to consider that when they um, when they present fees to prospective franchisees or whether those fees need to remain consistent to enable that kind of business development. Do you think there needs to be any wiggle room there? Boy, we could talk for hours on this topic. It's such an important topic, Kieran. Thanks for bringing it up, the franchise fee. So a lot of facets to the answer. In the U.S. and Canada, if we change the franchise fee, even for one person, we have to disclose it legally to every candidate for the next three years. Mm. Now, I can hear the gasp across the pond (laughs) as we speak here. So it's much different here than in other markets. So changing the franchise fee is a giant decision because you will, if it was 30,000 US and you want to get it up to speed and up to a modern standard of 50,000 US, then you're going to have to tell people, every candidate that comes in the process and receives your legal documents for the next three years that you did it, they'll see it and why you did it. So that's a big decision, but it's an important one. And it's one that, yes, I would say most Denizor needs to make if they're still down in the 20s or 30s and need to jump up to the 40s or 60s um, in the U.S. dollars. It's a little less transparent for most countries. And so it's a little easier decision. You can play with it. You can test it. You can see what works and what doesn't, perhaps. But the overarching message is stop lose <laughs> there's so m- you said it perfectly Karen there's so much that has to be paid out that franchise the uh, initial franchise fee the IFF you've got your marketing you've got internal team that you're supporting you've got oftentimes real estate you've got training you've got every facet of marketing to get those leads in the door whether it be working with consultants like the IFPG or the traditional marketing methods and there are dozens And then you've got commission for the internal franchise development team. You may have commission for the external team. Maybe you're working with the uh, outside franchise development team, or you're working with consultants or both. Man, there's a lot that needs to be paid. Mm. Now, I'm going to shift gears for a second on that topic. If I'm a franchise candidate and I'm making a life decision... That's what a franchise is. It is like getting married. It is bigger than buying a house. And so... I'm looking at it and let's whatever that all in investment range in the in the US and Canada we call it item 7 the all in investment it's 100,000 to 300,000 US for instance and the franchise fee is 30 guess what most big decisions an extra 10 or 20,000 dollars is not going to matter i mean they're mm. looking at a 250,000 US investment an extra 10 or 20 just not going to factor and i'll take it one step further When I'm making a serious big time decision, heck, when I'm making a little decision, yeah, I look at the price. Everybody that's human looks at the price, but oftentimes they look at it. And especially when it's a life decision like this, they go, I want to, I want the best. I want the very best. And if it's 10 or 20 for this one, it doesn't matter. I want the best. And in fact, if it's 10 or 20,000 more for this one over that one, they subconsciously or perhaps consciously think, well, that one must be better. It costs more. So, so many times we as franchisors look at it and go, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, the Papa Murphy's, which is a, a huge pizza chain over here, is 25000 I can't be above that. Man, you ain't Papa Murphy's. Okay. So, and you don't have the billion dollars in the bank. 
get real. And heck, if I see a pizza joint that's 40,000 and one that's 30, I'm looking at the 40 a little closer going, wow, these guys must have it together more. They, I bet they do more training. I bet they got a better system because it costs more. So making it cost more can actually be a benefit and a reason why you sell more franchises rather than less. So I can go on and on, but it is a serious topic. And I think franchisors sell themselves short all day long by making their franchise fee too low. Why um, Why do you think that some franchisors do have it too low? Is it purely just a case of trying to remain competitive? Or do you think it's that they just genuinely don't understand that increasing it could be so beneficial to their brand? Oh, definitely both. Um, a lot of times they look at competition and they say, oh, the competition's doing this. I need to do that. Another way is just like you said, they certainly don't understand the psychology of setting the price higher yeah. when it's a serious life decision. And another, and this just cracks me up and makes me cry at the same time, is attorneys. The uh, do, you, do you call them attorneys in the UK? Uh, yeah, lawyers, similar kind of thing. Yeah. So lawyers write the FDD, the franchise disclosure document, as we call it, sure. the franchise agreement. And I mean, when I was a franchise, you know, what was creating my franchise program, I still remember, I remember where I was sitting some 20 years ago when I'm talking to the attorney that I'd hired a franchise attorney and this franchise attorney had been doing it a long time. And we had talked about my brand up and down and all around. And she said to me, okay, Red, how much do you want to charge for your royalty? And I sat there in utter shock. Now, this is the same kind of decision as how much do you want to charge for your franchise fee? And I was like, sure. I'm just like fumbling. I'm like, <laughs> this attorney is asking me, someone who doesn't know anything about franchising at, at that point, mm. what I want to charge. And so I said, what do I want to charge? I want to charge a million dollars. It's not my, it's not what I want to charge. It's what is the optimal and ideal amount to charge where I can reach the most new franchisees or highest royalties and not lose candidates. So, and it's a, yeah, it goes back to it's a serious, a big decision, and I wish franchisors would think about it more and not just rely on some 80-year-old attorney who is not in the game and costs you so many deals because they're not interested in selling franchises. They're interested in protecting you legally. You need to balance it. You can have great protection and still charge a reasonable and fair amount where everybody wins. For sure. Yeah. It's all about having those kind of real franchise savvy people as part of your your advisory team. And that um, that brings us quite nicely onto the next question I had for you, Red, because obviously before you even get to the franchise fee stage, you've kind of got to generate franchise leads. And uh, and you recently shared a post on LinkedIn from, I believe it was FranConnect, um, that showed it takes around 15 to 20 leads from a franchise referral consultant to close one deal whereas that number could be as high as a thousand leads via social media to close the same kind of deal. Um, and I was wondering, Red, what you would say to franchisors who conduct most of their franchise recruitment independently and through sources like social media, rather than utilizing the services of an organization like your own at IFPG. Kieran, you have the best questions. Thank you. That, that's a, that, that's, <laughs> that's an very important, kind of you. Well, that's an important question. And by the way, I didn't have any influence on these questions, guys. He just he just knows his stuff. So the, again, a very important question for franchisors, most of which uh, I think um, a lot of your audience, again, is in Europe. And the franchise consultants, the referral consultant, the broker, whatever you want to call us, matchmaker, advisor, coach, has not caught on near as much. Uh, over there as it has here. Over here in North America, 
franchise referral consultants, brokers are the number one source for awarded franchises for closed deals. Now we're not the number one source for leads. There's plenty of lower quality lead sources, like you said, that will send you a thousand leads and you might get one deal. Franchise referral consultants give a much, much, much higher quality candidate that's been vetted, that's been financially approved, that's been matched uh, perfectly to the opportunities and has an expert holding their hand in the background, taking them through the process with the franchisor. So what would I say to franchisors who have not used consultants? Look at it, consider it. When I know how you feel if you think it's it's a waste or it's too expensive. I was in the same boat eight years ago. I had been in franchising for a while. I consider myself a marketer. I love marketing. I have a marketing degree. And when I came on board, many of your your listeners will know Expense Reduction Analyst, ERA, based near you in the UK. I was over uh, the Western Hemisphere for their development. When I was interviewing for that role, I asked the, the CEO of North America, um, so how are you getting your leads today? Where are the franchise candidates coming from? And he said, oh, we, well, we've uh, joined some of the consultant groups and we're relying on them. I'm in an interview right here with this guy, the CEO, and I, not kidding, I laughed out loud. Now, that's not <laughs> something I suggest when you're interviewing right. and they tell you where your leads are coming from. It was a mistake, but he, he kind of looked at me strange. I said, I tell you what, it, when if you hire me, I will change that. I will get rid of those consultants. I don't need them. I'm a marketer. I know how to get leads. I know how to close deals. We don't need to pay a big commission to, to consult referral consultants. And he's like, all right, Red. Well, if I hire you, it's your department. You can do with it as you want. You know, part of your income will come from commissions. And so I came on board. He hired me despite my rudeness of laughing while I was interviewing. And I started getting these leads. Now I'd planned on canceling the broker groups, but it takes a little while to unwind that. And I started realizing, oh my gosh, these are these leads, man, I'm kind of liking this life. These leads speak English. You know what I mean? Like I'm used to getting leads I can't even converse with because they don't even speak our language or they have no money or they think they applied for a job or, you know, you know, all the um, excuses. So sure, yeah. when I saw the quality of these leads, I started going, my gosh, this is nice. They're, they, they have the money. They like my model. They're familiar with my model. They know what the call is about. So I, I had a big 180 and fell in love with the consultant world. And so why does fr do franchisors work with referral consultants? consultants, financial risk is number one. You spend 20 or 30, you know, 15,000, 20,000 US dollars or more to get to a real buyer. And because you're, because you're risking all that in marketing. I mean, heck I spent one year, I got 1200 leads from three portals. I spent $50 US, uh, for each lead. It's been about $60,000. Red in his infinite wisdom and awesome sales prowess and incredible opportunity. I closed one deal out of 1,200. <laughs> and tell you what, I was more mad about all the time I spent, the eight phone calls and the 18 texts and the follow-up left and right, more than the $60,000 I wasted on one actual deal. On the flip side, I was closing one deal out of 12 with the consultants instead of one deal out of 1200. And I was loving life a lot more with that. So the financial risk is a biggie, but e equally so is just the, the joy and the pleasure of actually working with people who are interested in your model instead of being a, a call center, trying to call a hundred or 200 people a day that might have some clue why you're even calling them. Just a very different approach. And lastly, I'll mention franchisors will validate all day long that 
the candidates that ultimately are awarded a franchise and came from the referral consultants tend to be better franchisees. They, they, because they know the value of following someone who has more experience than themselves. So in this case, they're listening and following the advice and guidance of a consultant that is matching them with franchise opportunities. Then when they become a franchisee, again, they can't take that same mindset and they follow the franchisor's wisdom, guidance, and expertise. They're not some know-it-all that thinks they can do it all themselves. That's a nightmare franchisee. And when they work with the consultant, that's already kind of been vetted out of them. And so tend to win on both sides, the development side and the ultimately, once they've been awarded, a better franchisee side. And um, and you mentioned there, obviously, the whole quality quantity argument, which is a big part of lots of aspects of franchising. I imagine that also kind of ties back to what we were just talking about um, with regards to the franchise fee. I mean, brands never want to kind of shut out pr- prospective franchisees, but if you set it at a certain more sensible range, surely you're only really going to get, or not only, but you'll mainly get applications from much more serious, more um, you know viable business owners. You do. And, you know, not many folks on this call, myself included, have been a loan agent. But speaking with at least 100 bankers and loan agents from all the different loan groups, a theme I've heard for decades is it's easier to get a million-dollar loan than it is to get a $50,000 loan. And why I'm saying this, it's not a a perfect answer. I mean, certainly some people are not going to qualify for a million dollar loan, but banks like to loan more money. They It's the same work. Mm. The banker does the same amount of work if they're loaning 50 or 100,000 US versus a million or 5 million US. Same work. And they get paid based on how much they loan. So sure, you've got to qualify. But Again, going back to charging a fair amount, making profit when you sell a franchise, and being able to pay for all the different aspects of that that are there when launching a new franchisee. If you you bump your fee up a little bit, or maybe double it, you may even sell more. Not just because the psychological factor of you're a better quality franchise, but banks like to lend more. And so, again, going back to don't be afraid to charge a reasonable amount and don't copy uh, a competitor who you assume knows what they're doing. Um, and on the on the franchisor side of things, Red, you've mentioned in the past that um, one of the main roadblocks that a lot of brands come up against is that they simply don't know who their ideal franchisee is, which you just, you know, from an outsider's perspective seems crazy. That's like, you know, the fundamental part of franchise recruitment. But um, it seems to be across the industry that that is sometimes maybe overlooked or they just assume, oh, anyone is really. Um, how How do you think that brands can identify that kind of person? Are there some key steps that you kind of work with some of your clients? through in in working out what who that ideal what that ideal profile looks like yeah there are thanks Kieran there are several ways um, there are numerous let, let's start on the kind of more the science and the psychological aspect you've heard of myers-briggs or the disc assessment or Colby sure yeah there's those out there and you can take it yourself if you as the founder uh, feel you're the ideal franchisee you know, you're probably not. You're more entrepreneurial than a typical franchisee, but that may be a nice place to start. My favorite is called Zoracle, Z-O-R, so franchise Zoracle, like Oracle. They've had to change the uh, C to a K because of Oracle, the uh, software company, but Zoracle with a K towards the end is a great matching or profiling tool, not matching, but profiling. 
and they combine Disc and Myers and Colby and a couple others and really just paint a beautiful picture of who the candidate is. And if you've got franchisees, have your franchisees take that and then you can get with Zorkel or whoever the assessment is and tell them, okay, these five are top performers. These five are bottom performers. Let's look at some trends. How do the top performers uh, profile out versus the bottom performers? Do we see some similarities and some differences? And then when candidates come into the process and you have them take that, you can have a much better feeling if they're a good fit to you towards your top performers. And you know, let's be real. You can use it as a sales tool too, and let that hot candidate know that, oh my gosh, you are a, you are a perfect fit to our top 10% performers. Your, your profiled results overlap with theirs perfectly. You know, you're an achiever with a futuristic and relator mindset. That's the three top categories that our top performers have. This is beautiful. So it can give you more comfort and it can give the franchisee uh, candidate a lot more comfort in knowing if uh, their likelihood for success and their fit within that organization. Now, something else on the topic of knowing your ideal candidate. It's mm. like we hear the analogy all the time in franchising. Franchising is like marriage. The franchisor, the franchisee, it's like a marriage. And there, we all know there's some nightmare marriages. So you want to choose wisely. Well, when uh, it's been a while now, but back in the day when I was uh, a swinging single, I knew my type. I knew who I was looking for. And so know yourself is where you got to begin. Know your organization. Know the, the strengths needed, the weaknesses needed to succeed. Document them. Make sure the consultants, if you're getting referrals from consultants, know who you're, what your ideal candidate profile is and your franchise development team. And I'll take it one step further. That franchise development team, if you've got them just on commission, they don't care who you who they recruit. They want the commission. Mm. So go deeper and start thinking long term. Maybe reward that franchise development team or person for uh, a year from now. If someone they recruited is successful, sure, there's a little front end commission. They all get that and they've got a salary and all the different benefits. But perhaps they get an additional, a, a nice bonus at year one and year two if that new franchisee hits certain uh, criteria thresholds for success. Um, so get that franchise development agent, that rep on your team aligned with your long-term and short-term goals. Yeah, you want to get a bunch of franchises awarded, not sold, but awarded, but you also want them to be awarded to the right candidate that fits your ideal profile and, and syncs well with your culture. And so figure out how to do that to motivate that franchise development agent to not just be a used car salesman that'll take anybody that waves the check and instead is really truly caring about qualifying them for your opportunity. Big difference in mindset there. Yeah, no, you've, I think you've just delivered a complete franchise or recruitment masterclass there with <laughs> regards to, we've got the big three. So we've got um, get your franchise fees right, get your lead generation right, and get your, your franchisee profiling right. And it sounds like, you know, if, if franchisors can nail those, they're at least going to set themselves up for, for some kind of success down the line. Yes, absolutely right. 
And something a little bit different, um, Red, just as we we come towards the end, uh, is just at the minute, there's a lot of discussion around um, how the US government has handled the coronavirus pandemic with regards to supporting small businesses and franchising a lot of um, loans and programs over the past year to support kind of, you know, a lot of independent business owners. Um, and I was curious to hear a little, you know, from you on that in this, because you've, as we've mentioned, you know, you're, you're a real veteran of the industry, you know, it inside and out. Um, what's your take on on North America's kind of return to normal. I know, again, that's a phrase that everyone's incredibly sick of hearing by now. Um, but do you think that everything's kind of moving along quite nicely? Or do you think there's still more to be done as we um, come into the second half of the year now? Yeah, I will never be all the way back to normal. The, the new normal is another phrase we're tired of hearing. But yeah. uh, I have you know friends, as you do, that will always wear a mask. How bizarre is that? Sure. I mean, we used to see folks from uh, from Japan wearing masks and thinking that is so strange. Why do they wear a mask? And now we've become them. Uh, we have a certain sector of the populace that will always wear masks. There's certain people that will never shake hands again. Now, I can't relate. I went to, to my office uh, every day for the last year. I, I never worked from home once. And I went to the grocery store every third day. And I just basically uh, ignored it. And I, I should have probably gotten COVID 18 times by now. I haven't, or <laughs> to my knowledge. So I'm a bit of an outlier. But um, we'll never go back to where it was, but we are returning pretty quickly. I think the U.S. might be ahead of the return compared to some of the European nations. Um, in Texas, where we are much more independent and much more uh, uh, confident, I guess, uh, if I go to a public mall today, there will be 5 to 10% of people wearing masks. So it's, it's gone significantly away. I went to a restaurant and they actually required masks. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I had to go find a mask. So it's it's certainly getting a lot closer to normal, but the government has gotten way more intrusive. The U.S., uh, many people say, have, has reached a point where we'll never have the freedoms we once had. The government has proven they can take away almost all our freedoms, close churches and um, close businesses something that is, was absolutely unheard of, unimaginable, even a decade or five years ago, no one could ever imagine that the government could actually close a church and and close 95 90% of businesses, and yet we let it happen. So it's been proven that the government mm. can do almost anything they want now, and I don't know that we'll ever go back to the freedoms we once had, uh, which is pretty scary. But fortunately, people are also seeing they want freedom in their job. They want freedom in their career. They were given a taste of it. They were able to work from home, realize they can do that. And they like it. They were given a chance not to have an hour-long commute to the office. They were given a chance to work nights and weekends if they want and none, no middle of the day when they want. So they've just, a, a vast majority of the population has really gotten a taste of what life could be like if they own their own business. And that's a very big benefit of the of the pandemic is the freedoms people tasted and now they want more and they're looking to franchising to provide it. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be a very interesting next few, I'd say months, but I imagine years, as you say, as more people kind of recognize that there are other options out there. The typical nine to five isn't, hasn't got to be for everyone. Um, so, so yeah, it's going to be a, a very interesting end to the year and the decade onwards. Um, the, the final question I've got for you, Red, kind of loops back to what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of, you know, what's kind of excited you about franchising 
throughout your career um is you know what what are you looking forward to most in the next months years ahead in, uh, in terms of franchising trends particular sectors that you think are really going to boom or any industry events that you're just really excited about and want to tell people to come and join you at man that's some good stuff there um well, Karen, so back to the first question, why do I love franchising so much? Remember when we were little, when we were, again, going back to grade school, everybody wanted to be a sports athlete, baseball, soccer, football, et cetera. That was where it, the coolest thing anybody could be. Then you get in high school and college and the coolest people are the rock stars. They're in a band, right? Well, as we get into mature adulthood, to me, the coolest people, the most admired, the people all your classmates from 10 and 30 years ago look up to are the entrepreneurs. And so it's such a fun world to be in. If people look at it and go, wow, I, I, I want to be that one day. Now they're too scared to, or they're too, they don't know how to proceed. So franchising helps them do that. And to your question about future, franchising is future is brighter than ever. All the trends are leading our way from lowest interest rates in our lifetime to a very aggressive lending climate in most uh, areas to um, more franchise opportunities than ever, transparency more than ever, consumers wanting to wanting to buy from known uh, brands more than ever, which franchising falls into. So just trend after trend after trend is leading our way. It's it never been a better time than now to be in franchising. And then looking forward into the future of, of events, man, you, you're speaking my language with that one. I'll no doubt run across our, our brother Dickie at many of these events, but I'm, I would die to get over there to the Paris Expo. Um, I really love that show. It's the best. It's the well, be, most well-done show possibly in the world. Uh, anybody that goes to a European Expo and then goes to a U.S. Expo will be embarrassed for the U.S. and quite proud of Europe because you guys really do the Expos well. Seriously, heads and tails above the U.S. and Canadian Expos from a quality of presentation standpoint. So beyond Europe and the U.S., I, I would be remiss without saying the IFPG retreat. Certainly. We'll have four to four to 500 people in October. Uh, by the way, our website, ifpg.org, but ours is in Hollywood, Florida, and it'll be fantastic connecting with consultants and Zors. Other great shows, um, we've got four or five regional events we'll be doing as well, but then the IFB in New York City is the biggest expo in the U.S. That one's at the end of September. We've got Springboard, which is a great networking and emerging conference, also at the end of September. Uh, the multi-unit show in Las Vegas is a big one for, for the multi-unit brands. That one's since August. Man, I could go on and on. I mean, there's there's the uh, Franchise Leadership and Development Conference also in October in Atlanta, Georgia, that I just love. There's the Emerging Show in November in New Orleans. Uh, gosh, the Houston MFE Show. Lots and lots of, uh, whether it's expos or networking events or conferences, they're all over the place this fall. There will be more this fall than ever before. So much pent-up demand. Everybody's dying to get out and travel if they haven't been traveling. So yeah, lots and lots of shows. If anybody's going to be at any of these, man, say hi to me. If I walk by and don't see you, grab me. Uh, if you don't see my red hair, which is diminishing by the day, you'll, not <laughs> you'll notice the red vans. I wear red lace-up vans with a, with a suit, so it's pretty easy to catch me. And, and feel free to punch me in the arm or give me a hug, but definitely say hello. 
Well, very exciting times ahead. And uh, yeah, hopefully looking forward to being able to meet up with you and carry on the conversation in person at some point soon, Red. Um, but thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really great speaking with you. And yeah, look forward to hopefully, hopefully uh, seeing you again soon. I can't wait to see another Global Franchise Magazine, brother. Thank you for all you do for franchising. Love your magazine. Love your team. You really just built a world-class organization. Appreciate you. I mentioned it up top, but Red's passion for franchising truly is infectious. Whether he's enthusing about the importance of the initial franchise fee or advising franchisors on lead generation strategies, he's a genuine advocate for the model and somebody that you'd do well to turn to for guidance. And the franchising community will be able to meet up with Red in person at one of the many events he mentioned very soon, whether that's the multi-unit franchising conference in Las Vegas this August and September, or New York's International Franchise Expo also in September. We'd be keen to hear your thoughts on this. Which events are a staple of your franchising calendar, and what do you hope to get out of them this year? Make sure to let us know. If you like the podcast, subscribe and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Or even better, leave a review or a simple rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. To keep up to date with franchise news and have it put into context by the global franchise experts, subscribe to the magazine, hit us up at globalfranchisemagazine.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn today.